Okay. Well, here's the deal. It's a funny thing coming off retreat and then giving Dharma talks. (laughs) Being on a silent retreat for, I think it was 28 days, something like that. And then coming out and talking to a bunch of people. I gave a talk. I've actually given several since I've been home, and I I gave a talk to my Wednesday night group uh, in Alameda on uh, the week, just last week, on stillness and quiet. And ironically, I think I whispered through the whole talk. <laughs> so if I start, and I'm noticing that I do kind of get back into that mode while talking about Dharma. So if I start whispering, just give me a thumbs up and remind me, because I have no idea. <laughs> mm. Well, I'm just really, really happy to be here. Um, like James said, I practice metta on the March retreat at Spirit Rock, which if you're not familiar with what that is, what, what Spirit Rock is, it's a meditation center uh, up in Marin, and they provide two months, actually, of silent, fully supported silent meditation uh, space and guidance. Uh, James was teaching the whole month of February, uh, people sitting that, that retreat. And I see some of you here from the March retreat, which is really sweet. In February? Um, in February? Yeah, great. Sweet. So... Um, during that period, practicing metta, I'm going to talk a little bit about metta and what that is. So if that is also something unfamiliar to you, you'll be very familiar with it by the end. Um, I will, I'll share a little bit about my experience on the retreat, but I'm, I won't actually focus on that. Um, retreat experience is very personal, and it's so different for each person. Um, and it's different even for the individual each time you go on retreat. You never have the same retreat twice. So I'm not sure how useful it is for me to share my experience on retreat. I think I'd rather share um, my new understanding of metta and that the integration of metta into this practice. Um, and that's been supported by the retreat, but um, I think I'll talk more broadly this evening. So I'll start with a story. And some of you may have heard me tell this story before because I've been actually using it a lot in my talks lately, especially when I'm teaching about um, the heart qualities. And this is a Native American legend. So as any good legend, it's good to repeat. So if you have heard it, I uh, You're lucky to hear it again. (laughs) So it's about a grandfather who goes to his grandson and he wants to teach him a little bit about the world. And uh, he goes to his grandson and says, Grandson, there's two wolves that are constantly fighting within my heart. And one wolf is the wolf of fear, of aggression, hatred, ill will, confusion, greed. And the other wolf is of kindness, patience, 
compassion, joy. So the grandson thinks about this for a moment. And then he asks his grandfather, Grandfather, which wolf will win the war or the fight in your heart? And the grandfather answers, The wolf that wins will be the wolf I choose to feed. Isn't that sweet? (laughs) So this is our practice. We have these wolves within our own heart. We have the potential for both. The wolf that represents the hindrances, represents greed, hatred, delusion, and the wolf that embodies awakening. And so which wolf do we choose? When I ask the question, it's really easy to answer because I know, and we all know from our own experience, that the wolf of greed, hatred, and delusion leads to this cycle of uh, unsatisfactoriness, of dukkha, pain, suffering, it's, it's not a happy cycle. And we know this cycle well because we've chosen that wolf many, many times. So it's easy to say, well, yeah, I would choose the other wolf because I know that leads towards a cycle that cultivates happiness, clarity, connectedness, wisdom, It's an easy choice when we look at it in that way. But how often do we choose that wolf? Oftentimes, we are stuck in our habits of choosing the other. We don't even know we're doing it a lot of the time. So in this practice, we start to bring awareness to the wolf that we're feeding. And this can be enlightening in itself. I've shared in this group before the first time ever for myself coming to the practice. And I was in a 45-minute introductory class at IMC in Redwood City. And some, one of the senior students was leading this class, and there was maybe five of us. And I was there with a friend because I was really unsure about this meditation stuff. <laughs> and I went, went to make sure that everything was kosher. (laughs) I really thought it was a cult. (laughs) So I went and I sat and the teacher said, count your breaths. And when you no longer can, uh, when, when you space out or, or suddenly, uh, you realize that you're counting on automatic pilot, but you're not really paying attention, go back to one. Some of you may have done this exercise before. And then when we ended after five minutes and we went around and all shared what it was that we noticed, I was blown away that I had no control over my mind. And this is how it it goes. We have these untrained minds. And so we're constantly choosing this other wolf. We're constantly feeding this other wolf just out of ignorance, sweet ignorance. We just don't know better. And so we start to bring attention to it. And this can be very painful, isn't it? When we start to really see, 
oh, I'm feeding it again. I'm feeding it again. But over time, we begin to see that we have a choice. With mindfulness, suddenly we have a choice of which to feed, which is a beautiful thing. And then more and more cultivating and feeding this wolf of compassion, of insight, of wisdom, of awakeness. There's a set of heart practices. There's actually many heart practices within this tradition. Four of them are, uh, there's a set of four called the Brahma Viharas. And these are metta, which is loving kindness, which I'll mostly be focusing on this evening. Uh, Equanimity, upekka. Sympathetic joy, or mudita. And karuna, which means compassion. These three divine abodes of the heart. Brahma Vihara, the divine abodes of the heart. And so we have this way of cultivating these qualities, these characteristics of the heart. Uh, Metta, for instance, you can spend a whole month cultivating metta, this friendliness. Metta is often traditionally translated into loving kindness. Sometimes the word or the phrase loving kindness seems a little too far-fetched. I don't know if I can love with kindness, but we can be kind. So maybe if loving kindness doesn't really uh, land for you or seems like a stretch, simple kindness is metta. Kindness, friendliness. I heard Philip Moffat use the word friendness. This friendness. In Dutch, I'm really fortunate that I get to teach every year in the Netherlands. And they have this beautiful language. And there's this one word, I'm I'm probably going to butcher this, but um, I'm going to try and say it anyway. Hezilhed. 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 Something like that. That's awful. But anyway, the word is beautiful. And the word is apparently the most difficult word in their language to translate to English. We don't have a word that actually meets it. And this is a word that they're very proud of as a culture. Uh, It's a word that they feel represents their culture. And this word in a clumsy way, is often translated as coziness. Coziness. But actually, the way this word is used is to describe the feeling of being together, spending time with uh, a friend or someone that you really care about. So it's coziness in relationship with another. This friendness, this friendliness. There's a warmth to it. There's this joy and happiness, a sweetness that is this uh, metta. It is metta. And it's true. I, I witnessed this in this culture. It's beautiful. 
the time that is spent and cherished with the people that they care about. So this is metta, this coziness with each other, with ourselves. And in this practice, actually, we can expand beyond the people we care about directly to people maybe that are difficult and even further to all beings everywhere. Metta is gentle. I will share this on the retreat. Experience of divine gentleness. (laughs) Exquisite gentleness from the practice of metta. The expression of metta, from my experience, was gentleness. Every footstep felt so gentle. There was no aversion or disconnect when my foot would hit the ground, whether it was pavement or grass or dirt or wood floor, cement, it didn't matter. There was this coziness, even in a footstep. This embodiment of metta can be so gentle, so friendly. And so as we practice metta, which I'll tell you more about the practice of metta in just a little bit, but as we cultivate this friendliness, this uh, open-heartedness, this gentleness or this gentle heart that's able to relax into whatever is here, whatever is present for us in the moment, their true metta There exists no greed, no hatred, no delusion. There's no space for it with a heart that's that open and that friendly, that present. And so from that place, you could say it's really our natural way of being. If you look at greed, hatred, delusion as this film that often colors our mind, colors our perception of what's going on. Remove that film and what's left. Remove the layers of the closed heart, the protection that we so sweetly put up because we think it's helpful, that aversion. Remove that and what's left. It's this coziness. It's this gentleness. It's this metta. It's a natural way of being. It's simple in that way. There's actually nothing really that extraordinary about metta because it is our most natural state. And so from here, the Brahma Viharas come alive, or at least they did for me. My experience was from this place of of open-heartedness, of friendliness, Uh, equanimity just naturally was present. And equanimity is this beautiful quality of the heart. We don't often think of equanimity as a heart quality, but it is. It's the balancing factor. It's the 
bird's eye view of what's really going on. It's what actually brings balance to all of the other heart qualities. So with metta, it allows for this sustainability no matter what is present. So even when the mind and the body are perturbed, equanimity comes in and stabilizes this open heart. There's no need to shut off or protect because the heart knows with equanimity, which I think has a degree of wisdom, it knows that it doesn't need to close up. It doesn't need to fall into those older habits um, of shutting down or resisting. We can stay open even in the difficult times. Isn't that something? That might seem really far out and. I was told recently, talking about this, that this is way too optimistic. (laughs) And that might be true, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. So with this balanced, open heart, naturally, in the face of real difficulty or in the face of joy, the heart moves to meet whatever is present. So in the face of joy, mudita, sympathetic joy for someone else's successes, someone else's happiness. There were times on this retreat where I actually knew a lot of people on this retreat. I knew about 20 people sitting this last retreat, which was really something um, that's not usual for me on these longer retreats. And so I would pass people, and I could feel this, oh, I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> and it would just be this outpouring of joy. It was the natural response of this open heart. And then in times of real difficulty, whether it was my own or observing somebody else's, the heart naturally turns towards compassion. I guess I'm sharing more about this retreat than I had expected, but I'll share that there was a point in this retreat where, earlier on in the retreat where I was cultivating metta, 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 and there was difficult uh, scenarios that were coming to mind, difficult people coming to mind, difficult to me. I might be their difficult person, (laughs) to be fair, but difficulty coming up, right? And I continued on with, the practice of metta, and I was really trying to stay with metta, this friendliness, and it was feeling there was some friction there. Like I was really trying to make it into something. And I went into an interview, and the teacher said, I I think all she said was, Kate, compassion. Oh, right. That's, That's the natural response of the heart. I don't even have to try to direct it in any other way when the heart is this open. And so from there, I could feel this flow, this natural flow that I didn't need to get in the way of. I didn't need to do anything. The natural flow was this compassion in the face of difficulty and joy in the face of happiness for others. 
how sweet. This is the natural, this is, this is our nature. Even if it feels totally far off for you, this is, this is truly our nature. And we, we have experienced this. We have moments of this in our life. We have a dear friend who is experiencing something that we can share their excitement. And it's just this natural arising. We don't have to think about it. It's the natural response of the open heart or compassion. Our dear friend is having a really hard time and the heart quivers in response, that empathetic quiver, because we know what it feels like to struggle. And the heart doesn't have to close. It can stay open and respond in this way towards the difficulty. It's beautiful. So I was exploring the suttas to see what the suttas had to say about all of this. And I thought I would share a few things if I can find it. Yeah. The Buddha lists the benefits. I love that. <laughs> he lists the benefits, and there's apparently 11 benefits to practicing these, <laughs> these uh, practices, these, these heart practices. So I'll read them to you. You will sleep easily. You will wake easily. You will have pleasant dreams. People will love you. Devas, which are celestial beings, which I believe there's quite a few pictures. I think the ones on the side, I can't see them. But these celestial, kind of angel-like beings. Uh, The devas and animals will love you. Devas will protect you. External dangers like poison, weapons, and fire will not harm you. It's really speaking. I mean, can you imagine just because of an open heart? This is powerful, powerful practice. Your face will be radiant, your mind will be serene. You will die unconfused. You will die unconfused. You will be reborn in happy realms. This is powerful. He's pointing to the power of this practice. I think sometimes we think of the heart practices as um, pouring a little sugar on top of our our normal mindfulness practice. You know. But actually, uh, this is a very powerful practice. It can be healing, it can be uh, expansive for our mind, for our heart. It leads to concentration, but it also leads to deep wisdom. Also in the suttas, I think I'll read, I have a few versions of this. I'll read you this from the Diga Nikaya. Put away all hindrances. Let your mind fill, let your mind full of love pervade one quarter of the world. 
and so too the second quarter, and so the third, and so the fourth. And thus the whole wide world above, below, and around, and everywhere, all together continue to pervade with love-filled thought, abounding, sublime, beyond measure, free from hatred and ill will. This radiating quality of metta, this is what's actually described in the suttas, is this radiating quality of metta. It's not so formulaic, which was surprising to me. Because when we begin practicing metta, uh, it is a little bit more formulaic. But what the Buddha actually talks about in terms of metta is this radiating quality. I thought we could try it. Do you like to try it? Okay. So to do this, I'd like we won't do it very long if you're feeling tired. But this might perk you up, actually. I'd like you to sit in a way that's just relaxed. You don't have to uncross your legs or sit in any particular way. Just relaxed. If you're comfortable with it, let your eyes close. You can also just look down towards the the ground. And we'll start by bringing our attention to this body. And as a bit of a warm-up, maybe a little gratitude. Feeling gratitude for this amazing body, even if it's not functioning so well these days. The fact that it got you here, that it's allowing you to sit here. So grateful for this body. Gratitude for this space that we're in, being held in this way. Feeling the heart open. And then begin to, you can use your imagination a little bit for this. Begin by radiating this open-heartedness, this friendliness towards the front of us, this first quarter, radiating out from the front. For some people it can help to imagine a certain color radiating out of the body. For others, you can use one of the phrases or a series of the phrases that are often associated with metta. Something like, may you be happy and content. May you be healthy in your mind and in your body. May you be safe and protected. May you have ease on your journey. Radiating out, excluding no one. And then we turn to the right, continuing to radiate out in front of us, but now allowing ourselves to radiate, uh, 
to the next quarter, radiating out to the right of us. All beings, no one excluded. Just as light shines through a window, it doesn't decide who to shine on. Our metta, we don't have to decide who it shines on. We just radiate it in this direction now. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be at ease. And then allowing ourselves to continue radiating in these two directions and include now behind us. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be at ease. Allow your breath to be part of the experience as it pulses in and out. Allowing that feeling of radiating pulse with the breath. And now including all beings to the left of us. And so now in all directions, forward, back, left, right. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe. May all beings be at ease. Continuing radiating out, including above and below. All of those critters underneath us. All of those beings on the other side of the world. All of the birds, all of the beings up in the air. And maybe it goes beyond that. Maybe metta doesn't have to be exclusive to this world. May all beings everywhere, throughout the universe, may you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be at ease. So if you would like, you can stay with that sensation of radiating and allow the rest of this talk to just be in the background 
Or if you'd like, you can open your eyes and continue to listen. So for some, and I would put myself in this category, radiating doesn't, isn't always available. <laughs> Maybe our hearts are still needing some tenderizing. And so one of the ways to practice metta is actually to use phrases like the ones I was using. Uh, I find, and in talking to others, uh, it seems to be true for most people, to be helpful to actually choose phrases that resonate for you. So the phrases that I like to use are similar to um, the traditional ones. May you be happy and content May you be safe. Uh, May you be protected. May you be at ease. But choosing phrases that are meaningful to you, that express that friendliness, words that really resonate for you in this time, they change sometimes over time. And that's just just fine. And we start uh, reciting these phrases to different categories of people with the idea that we can go through these different categories and in in the end be able to wish metta for all beings everywhere. So more and more letting go of this exclusivity that my metta is really meant for these people. They don't deserve it so much. (laughs) So it starts to break down this this barrier that sometimes we have. We may not even know we have it. I know I haven't. Sometimes it's so surprising, the people I feel are just not wor- they're not worthy of my metta. And I'll think, oh, Kate. <laughs> wow. I didn't even know I had that in me. It can be so surprising sometimes. But I'll tell you what some of these categories are. So we actually start with ourself. We start with ourself. This is often the most difficult category for people. Starting with ourself. Most of us are inclined to say it for others. Uh, For some reason, especially in our culture here, there can be this feeling of unworthiness, maybe even guilt for wishing these things for ourselves when there's others who may be more in need. Um, All sorts of things can start to arise. And I'll tell you something, a story that comes out of the suttas. Uh, It's about a king and a queen, the time of the Buddha. In fact, the Buddha was staying on their land at this time. And this king and queen had this conversation where they came to this realization, a very pure, wise realization, that... They loved themselves more than anyone in the world, and they were most worthy of their own love than anyone in the whole world. And this wasn't conceit, and they realized this, and they realized this was important that they had realized this. They were most worthy of their own love. So they go to the Buddha, the king goes to the Buddha to check this out, to see if this is true. And the Buddha listens and sees that uh, what they've 
come upon, what they've stumbled upon, is actually quite profound. And so he responds with this. Searching all directions with your awareness, you'll find no one dearer than yourself. This is a message to us. You'll find no one dearer than yourself. Do we believe that? That can be hard to believe. Especially if we have a story that we're not good enough, not worthy enough. I think, James, you tell a story sometimes. I think of the Dalai Lama maybe coming to IMS or way back. The Dalai Lama coming to the U.S. And someone in the audience asked something or said something about feeling unworthy. Is that right? And the Dalai Lama didn't know what that meant, unworthiness, that self-unworthiness of this wisdom and compassion. And so he and the translator went back and forth for a while, trying to figure out what this guy was talking about. Can you imagine that? Being in a culture where this word unworthiness didn't exist? It's just a concept that we hold dearly sometimes, but it's just a concept. He finally realized what this man was saying, and he leaned forward and said, it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. Searching all directions with your awareness, you find no one dearer than yourself. That's true. And so we start this practice, cultivating that, coming more and more attuned to that truth. And from there, the heart begins to open. And then we include others, our benefactors, the people that really believe in us, our cheerleaders in life, our loved ones, who often we have a more complicated relationship with. We love them, but maybe... They do things that get under our skin or they know where our buttons are or we have history with them. And so it gets a little bit more complicated. And then the neutral person, the person that you see, but maybe you don't notice them. You don't even think to open your heart towards them. This might be the barista at the coffee shop or the person bagging your groceries. It could be the person who delivers your mail. It could be the person who is panhandling up on Shattuck. Do we think to even open our heart to them? It's not so easy. That neutral person. And then comes the difficult person. And this is difficult. (laughs) Although I find that there can be so much transformation in this category, realizing at this point that the well-being of this being is for the benefit of, of all beings. And so why wish them anything but metta and compassion? That's not easy to do. (laughs) Easier to say sometimes. But that is the trajectory. The Buddha, in addressing this, this king, he also says, as he says, you will find no one dearer than yourself In the same way, others are dear to themselves. 
This stretches our perception a little bit. We start to see that not only are we worth our own love, but each of us is worth their own love, worthy of their own love. And so he says, if you understand this, if you truly understand this, you, would, you, would, you should not hurt others if you love yourself. He's talking about this interconnection, this non-separation. When we truly love ourselves and see that everyone is worthy of love, then why would we hurt another? If we hurt another, our heart will close. We hurt ourselves. There's no separation. There's no hurt that we do to another that doesn't hurt ourselves. If you love yourself dearly, you would never hurt another. This is what he's saying. And so developing metta in this way, I think of it uh, as being different for different people and at different times. So there's sometimes where I find developing metta like this, I can just jump right in. My heart is open, I'm ready, I'm into it. And then there's other times where it's, oh, it's so hard and it's painful. And I think of it as, I have this visual of it, all of us being around this cool pond, this uh, lake, cool lake water. And it's a hot day and all anybody wants to do is jump in this cool lake water of metta. And for some of us, at some times, we know exactly what it is, we're not afraid of it, and we just dive right in because we know that coolness feels so good. And for some of us, at some times, first we have to put a toe in, and it's cold. And we kind of wait for that coolness to um, be okay before we put more of our body in. We get up to our knees. And you've probably done this before. You've ever gone, walked down the stairs into a pool on a hot day. (laughs) It's, you know, kind of like torture. But you'll get there eventually. Everyone in the end ends up in this cool water. But for some of us, we just inch in. And we can be really judgmental of ourselves. Why didn't I just jump in? Now I'm really suffering. <laughs> I want to get out. But eventually, we're all swimming in that water. We can all be refreshed by that experience of metta. It's not exclusive to anybody. There's nobody here that can't access this feeling of open-heartedness. And so we don't need to add that extra judgment to our process in opening the heart. It's not necessary. Just know that eventually you'll be swimming with everybody else and you'll be looking back on shore and watching others do the same, putting a toe in (laughs) and then the knees and your heart will open with compassion because you know. And so I see that I'm running out of time. And I have some more to share with you. I think I'll share one more thing. Because this was what was most important to me coming out of this retreat. So we we cultivate metta in this way. uh, Either radiating or 
doing the categories, saying the phrases. And oftentimes in this tradition, we see metta, brahma-viharas as being one practice. We cultivate that. And mindfulness, the wisdom practices, being another practice. And we see them sometimes as being separate. I don't see them as being separate. I don't think that's actually how they're taught. We, it's helpful to cultivate them separately, just like you would if you were someone who works out. If you don't work out, then you've watched other people work out. And you'll see that you know, they'll, you'll work on certain areas of the body. So you might run to strengthen your legs. You might do push-ups to strengthen your arms, sit-ups for your stomach. And so you're working out all these individual muscles or areas of the body, but that's really worthless if the body can't be used together, all these muscles used together to create stability, fluidity, strength. And so the same goes for metta and our mindfulness practice, or the brahma-viharas and our, our mindfulness practice. The two at some point have to come together to work together to create that fluidity, that strength, that support. And so as we are mindful of the difficult things, the heart, in order to to sustain that mindfulness, the heart needs to be available. It needs to be open. And so metta, compassion, equanimity, sympathetic joy are essential. The two aren't separate. And as we cultivate our mindfulness practice and we continue to go towards or continue to look to see what is actually happening in this moment, and we do this in a kind way, our kind attention, we are cultivating our heart. We're cultivating our metta and our compassion, our mudita, our equanimity. And so the two support each other. They're not separate. So I'll end with um, a Rumi poem that I think speaks to this. This open-heartedness, being present with whatever comes. This is called the guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He or she may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So, I'll end there. We don't really have time for questions, do we? (laughs) A minute or two? Hmm. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good idea. Okay. So we'll dedicate, I'll dedicate the merit, another metta practice.
This is done at the end of every Dharma talk here and in most meditation centers and Sangha groups like this one. And it's a time to simply acknowledge the wholesomeness of being here together, practicing in this way. And it's also a time to acknowledge that this practice is not just for us that our practice has a huge impact on who we are and how we are in this world. And so our practice affects others, quite literally. And so when you go home, or go to work, or go to the coffee shop tomorrow, this practice has some kind of influence on how you are, informs you how to be in this world. And so in that way, this practice is not just for us. It also functions in a way that is beyond our understanding, that radiating heart, radiating wisdom. And so in ways that we can't even understand, this practice is for all beings everywhere. And so we include them in this dedication of merit that all beings everywhere be happy and content May they all be healthy in their mind and in their body. May they all be safe and protected. May all beings everywhere have ease on their journey. Thank you for your sweet attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.